turn to Mark chapter 2. We are going verse by verse through the book of Mark as a church right now. We are glad that you're here today. I I just got to tell you this. Uh, I heard about three friends, three buddies who happened to pass away on the same day. I just want you to know there's nothing theologically correct about this joke that you're about to hear. But three friends passed away on the same day. They end up in heaven and Peter's there, welcomes them and says, hey, glad you guys are here. Just just want you to know there, there is one rule in heaven. And the three guys said, what's that rule? He said, you can't step on any ducks. And as they looked around heaven, they saw there's ducks everywhere. How, how are we going to avoid stepping on a duck? Well, sure enough, one of the guys, uh, about a week into heaven, he stepped on a duck. And here comes St. Peter. Nothing gets past St. Peter. And he walks up with the, <laughs> terrible joke, with this ugly woman. And he says, sir, or Peter says, sir, you are going to be chained to her for the rest of eternity. And he chained them together. And then the second friend, just the next day, he stepped on a duck. Sure enough, there's Peter, this ugly woman. He chains them together, and they're stuck together for the rest of eternity. The third friend, though, he said, man, I don't want that to happen to me. So he was careful. He didn't step on any ducks. And about six months into heaven, his stay into heaven, here comes this beautiful woman. Peter's walking her up to this man, and he chains them together, says, you're going to be chained together for eternity. And the man said, He looked at that woman and said, what did I do to deserve this? And she said, I don't know what you did, but I stepped on a duck. Well, (laughs) it's all about perspective, isn't it? It's in his blood, two peas in a pod, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter, a chip off the old block. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, a horse of the same color. She's a spitting image. She's a carbon copy, two of a kind, younger version, out of the same mold, birds of a feather. You've been there, haven't you, when you've known somebody's disposition, their demeanor, their personality, all their quirks, and then all of a sudden you meet the parents and you say, oh, now I know where it comes from. If you have an ache in your heart today for lost people, this passage is going to teach you where it comes from. If you have the spirit of Christ in you, in your heart, and you are indwelled with his gift of the Holy Spirit, we're going to find out where that ache came from today in Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. As we go verse by verse through this, then we're going to pull off some applications out of the passage. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach him. Now, I'm a, I'm a little frustrated with Mark. I just got to tell you this. Mark hardly ever tells us what Jesus taught. Have you noticed that? He just says he taught them, and then he doesn't say what he taught. I want to hear Jesus' sermons. I want to hear what he taught, but there's a reason for this, and I think this is a good time. Let's just take five minutes. I want to explain the difference in the four Gospels. There's four Gospel accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are different, but the same. I want to tell you how they're different. They're written to four different groups of people. Matthew wrote to the Jews, to Jewish Christians, so that was his audience. That's why you see a genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. The Jews cared about that. Mark was writing to Romans. You see no Christmas story in Mark because Romans didn't care about genealogies. Luke was writing to actually one man by the name of Theophilus. He was a Greek, so people say Luke was writing to the Greeks. John was writing to everybody, and so he's all-inclusive in his language. Matthew actually is called the teaching gospel. You see a lot of the, so I'm frustrated Mark didn't explain the teaching, but Matthew did. 
Matthew would give word for word. You have the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Three whole chapters devoted to one sermon in the book of Matthew. And you have Matthew 23, Matthew 25. You have other pastors that Matthew explains the teaching. Mark is called the action gospel. He's just Jesus to this, Jesus to this, Jesus to this, Jesus to this. And if you ever read through Mark in one sitting, you will come up gasping for air. It's like, wow. Luke was the researcher. He was the doctor. He was the physician. His detailed account. John is the storyteller. He devotes entire chapters, John 4, John 8, John 11, to just one story. And the last half of John, the last 10 chapters, about 10 chapters of John is dedicated to the last week of Jesus' life, Jesus going to the cross. We get more details about the cross from John than any other writer. And so those are the differences, and that's why Mark doesn't tell us the teaching But all the gospel accounts are worth the read. So Jesus is leaving Capernaum because there's not enough room in the houses for the crowds. He goes out to the lake because there's no boundaries there. He can have a lot of people listening to him. And it says in verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. This is not the same Levi who created the jeans that we're wearing today, just so you know. And he said, follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. I bet no emotions went into your gut whenever I read that verse. Because we're Americans. They were Middle Easterns. And the second you said tax collector in their presence, they went, ooh, cooties. You remember that? Remember the cootie thing in grade school? Tax collectors have cooties. We don't hang around people with cooties. Levi, let me explain who Levi is. He's a tax collector. He's a Jewish man who is collecting taxes, cheating money from Jewish people. Jews not only had to pay taxes to the temple in Jerusalem and their own Jewish government, but they had to pay taxes to the Roman government, and Levi was working for the Roman government. He was cheating his own people. He was a traitor. Nobody was worse than a tax collector. As much as they didn't like the Romans, they couldn't stand tax collectors anymore because they're throwing under the bus their own people. The closest thing that I could come up with thinking about who this would be during the Holocaust, 1930s, 1940s, the Nazis were killing the Jews then, and they would grab some Jewish people and tell them secretly, hey, we'll give you more food, we'll let you live a little bit longer if you would turn in all of your Jewish family into us so we can kill them. And there were some Jews who took him up on it. And if you ask the Jews back then, who do you hate more, the Nazis or these people who are turning you in who are your own kind, who who do you think they would say? As much as they didn't like the Nazis, I think they called them Sonderkommandos was the word. They didn't like the people who were being traitors. And Jesus says two words to Matthew. Follow me. Just two words. Now, he could have walked up to him and looked at him and said, I bet your mother's real proud of you. Or said something of disgust like that, but he doesn't. He just walks up to him and says, follow me. Now, I also imagine the other followers of Peter are thinking, wait a minute. Here's Peter, James, John, Andrew. They're saying, we decided to follow Jesus, but we didn't say we're going to hang out with the tax collector. What is going on here? Jesus, what are you trying to pull off here? What's also interesting is what Jesus does not say. The qualifications for following Jesus was not this. This was not Jesus' invitation. If you are willing to 
blank, you can follow me. If you're willing to memorize 20 verses, if you're willing to pass the Bible study over three months, if you're willing to learn this, if you're willing to gain this much knowledge, have this good of attendance, give this much money, then you can follow me. What does he say? Follow me. He starts with acceptance. You think Matthew ever, or Levi ever got that before in his life? He started off letting him know, I accept you already. Follow me. We have a tendency to take that which is simple and complicate it, don't we? We have a tendency, even with Christianity, to take something that is so simple and put extra rules on it and complicate it and make it harder than it really is. I just got to tell you, living the Christian life is hard enough as it is. We don't need to make it any harder by saying you have to dress a certain way to go to church. You have to act a certain way. Well, you've seen all the extra rules. Jesus simplified the question. And I guess the question for us today would simply be this, three words, am I following? I'm not asking today, have you memorized? Have you studied? Have you learned? Have you, am I a follower of Jesus? Can you imagine how many more people would come to Christ if that was the invitation today? If we would just make it that clear, if we wouldn't say you got to clean up your act first and then you can follow Jesus, Jesus just looked at Matthew and said, follow me. Well, this gets worse for the Pharisees. Verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner, uh uh-oh, at Levi's house, are you kidding me? Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So just to give this a clearer picture, there was a system then of who was good and who was not. Here was the system. Let's put it into into perspective. The best people were, were the religious leaders. They were considered cream of the crop. Uh, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, the Sadducees, they walked around. They kind of strutted their stuff. The next group of people that were honored were the local leaders, people who lived in Capernaum maybe, and they helped out with the church or, or, the, or the synagogue. The next group of people were the devout Jews. They were just good, moral Jews. But then there were the average Jews. They were okay. And then there was a line drawn. You had the bad Jews. Maybe they weren't living right, they weren't coming to synagogue, they weren't giving like they were supposed to. And sometimes the bad Jews were kicked out of synagogue. They weren't allowed to, quote unquote, come to church anymore. But there was even a group worse than the bad Jews and they were called sinners. They just called them sinners. Serial killers, people on death row, the guy in the corner selling drugs to 10 year olds. And we go, oh, are you kidding me? Sinners. And they definitely weren't allowed in the synagogue. They were excommunicated from anything Jewish, but believe it or not, there was a group worse than the sinners and they were called tax collectors. So as bad as sinners were, yeah, I may be a mass murderer, but at least I'm not a tax collector. (laughs) At least I'm not one of them. That kind of puts it into perspective of how low, and here's Jesus having dinner in those days when you eat in somebody's homes, you're saying, I'm affirming their lifestyle. I'm with him. And the Pharisees are thinking, are you kidding me? Now, here's just, if you, if you haven't been in church in a long time or you didn't grow up in church or, or you've been mistreated in church or you don't know what to think of church or Jesus or Christianity, you're still searching this thing out. I just, I got to tell you this about Jesus. Jesus liked hanging around people that was nothing like Jesus. And apparently people who were nothing like Jesus were comfortable 
hanging around Jesus. Which means if you're not religious or you have something in your past that you're ashamed of and you've ever been looked down upon by a fellow Christian or you've ever come in here and you weren't accepted or you weren't loved, I just, I just want to say that's our fault. That's not our Savior's fault. He would have loved you. He would have accepted you. He would have liked you. He would have had dinner with you. He would have never pushed you off to the side. That's on us. That's not on him. We're getting the heart of who he is here. Look at verse 16. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples. I always like how they don't ask Jesus. They asked his friends. That's a mature way to do it. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I just think, I don't know this to be true. I just imagine the disciples are thinking, I don't know. (laughs) We're trying to figure this thing out too. And as you read the Gospels, you learn the the disciples really didn't know anything about anything. (laughs) They never got questions right. They're always getting things wrong. Jesus, yeah. But the Pharisees ask him, why is he eating with tax collectors and disciples? I don't know. We're just along for the ride. Look at verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but everybody read the next three words, but the sick. Mark Twain once said, having spent a considerable amount of time with good people, I can see why Jesus liked to be with tax collectors and sinners. This is called sarcasm. If you don't think sarcasm is in the Bible, you're wrong. He looked at the Pharisees and he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. It's not those of you who think you're just so good and you're always pointing your finger at others, you're always accusing, you're always looking down on others. You're not the one who needs a doctor. It's the sick. And the Pharisees are like, yeah, that's right. We are healthy. Thank you. And then there's Matthew. I just imagine Matthew saying, what did you just call me, Jesus? Did you just call me sick? And he looks at all of his friends sitting there watching the football game. He called you sick, Matthew. Hey, he called us all sick. Then they start giving each other, hey, we're sick, all right, awesome, we're sick. And they start eating their chicken wings again. You know, the truth is, here's a deep, dark, secretive truth. It's not that secretive. We're all sick. You know that, right? You're sick. Actually, turn to the person next to you and look at them and say, you're sick. Just do that for a moment. Don't say it with emotion. Don't, you know, you're sick. And your response should be, I'm more sick than you know. You know, we don't come close to following God's standards. You know that, right? Actually, let me put it a different way. You don't come close to following your own standards. You know what you accuse other people of? You do it. And when you get on your high horse and you start pointing your finger at others because they're doing this, you do those. You do You don't even follow your own standards. I don't either. Let alone God's standards. You know deep down if there's a judgment and you're outside of Christ, you're in trouble. You don't need me to tell you that. And just in case the Pharisees, who were pretty stubborn, didn't understand the analogy, he goes on to say, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And what he is saying is, everyone is sick. Everyone needs a doctor. And it's not until you go to the doctor that you get well. Okay, this last week I went to the doctor. I hated it. I mean, I hated it. I don't go to the doctor. 
I don't like taking time out of my week. I don't like taking time out of my work day. I don't like spending the money. The copay just makes me mad by itself. But I finally went to the doctor because I've been battling something for seven years. And I get in the doctor's office. We're sitting in the room, and it's a, it's a lady of Iranian descent. And she says, what are you battling? I told her, I'm not telling you, but I told her. And she looked at me, and she, she's writing all this down as I'm talking. And she said, okay, how long have you been battling this? <laughs> I said, seven years. And she dropped the pen turned her chair and just looked at me and I just smiled (laughs) and she said why did it take you so long to come in and I said because I I am one of those oh what do you call them I'm I'm a man (laughs) I thought I could take care of it I thought I could battle I thought I could push through I figured I could have figured out a way to I didn't need to go to the doctor But let me just tell you this. It wasn't until I admitted I was sick and then went and got outside help did I get a prescription. Being sick actually doesn't even get you well. Being sick and admitting you need help is when you get well. And Jesus isn't saying, Pharisees, you're healthy and they're sick. He's saying you're all sick, but they're the ones who went to the doctor. So they're the ones who get the prescription. They're the ones who get the medication. So that's the text. That's the sermon. Here's four applications. Number one, if we have the heart of Christ, we should have a heart for people far from God too, right? If we have the heart of Christ, we should have a heart for people far from God as well. Question, who are you witnessing to right now? Who are you engaging with in conversation about Jesus right now? J.C. Ryle said, now catch this, no true Christian goes to heaven alone. No true Christian goes to heaven alone. Raise your hand if you're glad that somebody introduced you to Jesus sometime in your life. Aren't you glad? Don't you want to do that for somebody else? I'm so glad I had a mom and dad who the number one priority in our home was Jesus. Every day, every Sunday, but every day. It was Jesus Christ. And they're the ones who introduced me to Jesus Christ. It's the greatest gift you can ever give your children is to point them in the, in the direction of a loving, heavenly father. See, here's what they thought then. The Pharisees thought holiness by segregation, holiness by separation. I'm going to be holy by not touching that which is dirty. I'm not going to touch dirty events. I'm not going to go to dirty parties. I'm not going to be uh, around dirty things, dirty foods, dirty drinks. And then that eventually gets to, I'm not going to be around dirty people as if there's any clean. Jesus comes along, he embodies holiness, and he says holiness is the opposite of what you thought. Holiness is not segregation, it's integration. It's not pulling yourself away, it's pulling yourself in two. And the Pharisees couldn't, they could not fathom this. I thought if you're holy, you set, no, Jesus says you love those who are far from God. By the way, outside of Christ, we're all far from God. Bigger picture. In the Gospel of Mark, if you've been here, uh, you've been watching us go verse by verse through this. What, we, what have we seen already? I think Jesus is making a point. 
He calls dirty fishermen to follow him, social outcast. He heals a leper, the physical outcast. He heals the paralytic, the spiritual outcast. He comes to the tax collector's house, the moral outcast. Jesus came for the sick, those who knew they were sick. If we have the heart of Christ, we will do the same. I want to share with you three values here at Venture Christian Church. We go through these every now and then. Would you read these along with me? Number one, bringing people to Jesus. Number two, growing people in Jesus. Number three, equipping people for Jesus. I think I heard you on the third one. Good job on the third one. Which one of these are we talking about today? You would think this is bringing, wouldn't you? And you're right, it is. It's actually all three. How do you grow in Christ? Bring people to Christ. How do you equip yourself for Christ? What does he want to equip you for? The ministry of bringing people to Christ. This isn't just about bringing. This is about growing. And this is about being equipped. One of the evidences that we are saved is that we have a heart for lost people. Next week is grand opening for Venture Christian Church. I don't know how many of you know that. Last week, we wrote down five names on a piece of paper of people that we would invite to grand opening next Sunday. I hope you remember who those five are. I've been praying for those five that you put on a sheet, so I don't know how many that is, maybe 100 people that I've been praying for this week. But I want to put this another way today, and you're going to feel guilty after this, and I will too. I want to, every sermon deserves a guilting time, right? So give me this moment. If I were to ask you, no, if I were to tell you, for every person you bring next Sunday, you get $10 million. You like that? For every person you bring next Sunday, you get $10 million. How many of you, and don't lie in church, Carlos, how many of you would make sure to bring at least one person, raise your hand, and my hand goes up? I, I would drag people out of bed. I would have a whole row full of people. Why? For $10 million. $10 million is on the line. I'm going to be bringing people to church. We realize more is on the line than $10 million, right? People's souls. And yet what motivates us more than that is money. Oh, so American, and we all feel so guilty right now. So let's move on. Number two, another application. Our church should have a heart for people far from God. Let me just, real shortly, there's a statement. One guy, I don't remember who, who, who said it. A church exists for people who don't go there yet. We exist for people who are not here. Let me put it a different way. Much, not all, much of our money goes to people who don't go here yet. Marketing, signs, advertisements, social media that we boost. Uh, we were in the newspaper this week. And so they're, they're advertising in the, newspaper, in the newspaper the next five weeks. All that is not for us. It's for people who don't even know we're here yet. We are investing in people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the Lord's church should do. Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus says, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. We have about, this is a new church, we have about 80 people, best I can count, and about eight churches who have invested 
to give every month for the next three years to this church. You don't live around here. They live in Illinois, Missouri, Indiana, Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Florida. We have about 80 people, real quick count, give or take three or four, that are giving out of their hard-earned money every month for people they will probably never meet. My heart is just softened by that. On this side of heaven, they'll never meet them. They're giving for people far from God. And if they can do that, then this church should also do that, and we intend to. Number three, I learned this from this passage, God can save anyone. Can somebody say, old-fashioned Baptist, amen? No matter what you've done, no matter how bad you think you are, and you may be, you are not outside of God's grace. His grace is big enough for you. Jesus reached out to the biggest sinner in the city. Capernaum, who's the biggest sinner in the city? Levi, Jesus reached out to him. Awesome. God can save anyone. No one is outside of his reach. Seems to be a consistent theme throughout the Bible. He saves Rahab, the city's prostitute. He saves Nebuchadnezzar, a dictator against God's people. He saved Naaman, who started wars against God's people. He saved the woman at the well, who no one would talk to, but Jesus would. He saves the woman caught in adultery. When everyone else wanted to throw the stones, Jesus tells him, he who has no sin may cast the first stone. He saves Zacchaeus later in Luke 19. He's a tax collector while walking through Jericho. He saves Saul, who was a murderer of Christians, persecuting the church. He becomes one of the most influential Christians in the history of Christianity and writes much of our New Testament and he comes to Levi today and totally changes his life. God can save anyone. And number four, as we close, obedience is simple, but not easy. It doesn't get any more simple than this, does it? Follow me. And he gets up and follows him. That's simple. But it doesn't mean it was easy. Luke tells us something about this story that Mark didn't in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up. Now, what's the next two words? Mark didn't use these two words. What's the next two words? Left everything. Oh, he left everything. Now, Peter, when he left the fishing, later on, he could go back to the fishing. The lake's always there. But when Levi left his riches and his tax booth, the Romans would have auctioned it off to somebody else. He would have never been able to go back to his old job. He would have never go back to his comfortable life, to the known. He would have never been able to go back to Capernaum, probably. When he left everything, he left everything. Sounds simple, but it's not easy. Sometimes preachers stand up here and act like it's easy. I get it. It's not always easy to give your life to Christ. There may be a family history. There may be a different faith in your family. So to jump over into Christianity may be a big deal. There may be some other reasons why it's, obedience is simple, but it's not always easy. Jesus calls the biggest sinner in the city. Levi, follow me. And it radically, wonderfully changes his life. And by the way, in your Bible, the book right before Mark is a book called Matthew. Do you know who wrote Matthew? Matthew. Do you know who Matthew is? Levi. Levi changes his name to Matthew, and he writes the first gospel in your New Testament. If you're a college basketball fan, you know the name Jim Balvano. 
head coach of the New, uh, North Carolina State basketball team, 1983 national champions. There's a tournament every year, the Jimmy V Classic, and they're on the ESPY Awards, he has an award called the Jimmy V Award. The world shines a light on Jimmy V's basketball status. But I think I know what God would shine a light on Jimmy V. About a year before he was to pass, the doctors diagnosed him with terminal bone cancer. They gave him a year to live, and they were about right. And with about two months to go, he started to explain to people for the last year, uh, he admitted he was a terrible father all those years, a terrible husband, and he was a maniac uh, on the basketball court. And he was. And he was a maniac with his job. But in the last year, he turned to his faith and he turned to his family. Rather than working on his physical sickness, he worked on his spiritual sickness. And this is what he says, I think, in the 1993 SB Awards. He was quoted as saying two months before he passed away, Cancer can take away all my physical abilities, but it cannot touch my mind, it cannot touch my heart, and it cannot touch my soul. And those three things are going to carry on forever. And Jimmy V's wife, after he passed away, said Jimmy was in a good place with God. And that's the same place Levi had been. Sick, but he admitted it. And that's the same place I have been. And that's the same place every one of us have been. And I want to end in a good place with God. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads.